We thank you that this day has been set aside for us to join in the praises of your people across the world, across the ages, to lift up the reason for which we gather, the fact that Jesus Christ, the true and second Adam, the only sufficient sacrifice for our sins, came and took on flesh, became a man, dwelt among us, preached the kingdom, took on the burden of atonement in his slain body on Calvary's tree. It is his blood which binds us together with the cords that cannot be broken. Having paid for our sins and having awakened us to newness of life, regenerated our souls and gathered the saints, Lord, because now, having our sins atoned for, we have new and resurrection life in his name alone. As we turn to the scriptures which foretold these very events, proclaim to the nations in the distant regions, dark and dying in the death and depravity of their sin, to awaken to the truth of a hope on the horizon. I pray, Lord, that the voice of your proclamation through the ages and through prophecy and through those who've gone before would quicken the heart of your saints to realize this faith that you've given us is so powerful and so precious. It transcends time, purchases for yourself a people, and will be proclaimed and declared and exalted and magnified forever without end by heavenly creatures and every saved soul that will one day populate the realms of glory. In this brief foretaste, in this little window into our glorious purpose that we have this day as we gather, may we be encouraged and equipped with the endurance, the faith, and the boldness necessary to stand unto the day when you return or call us home to gather with the saints of glory in praise of your great name. I pray, Lord, that your scriptures would cut deep within our souls, rooting out any areas of sin or flesh that easily beset, and setting our feet more firmly upon our rock, Jesus Christ. I pray that your scriptures would go forth to the lost, calling them unto resurrection and life from the death of their sin, unto the praise and worship of Christ alone, and whom is their sole hope of redemption. Lord, I pray that as we have this time to gather together around the authority proclaimed in your scriptures, that we would be greatly equipped for your call beyond these walls to proclaim with boldness that Jesus Christ alone is our salvation and our hope and is King of kings forevermore. In his name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What an awesome gift, opportunity, and occasion we have today to gather as the saints of God, to worship our Lord, and to hear his word proclaimed. Today, let's do so by turning to Psalm 117, our second Sunday of the month, in our psalm series, brings us to Psalm 117. The title of this morning's message is One Voice. A subtitle could be Multinational Worship. There is a calling going forth even yet today, but it was echoed way back centuries, millennia before from Psalm 117, to all nations and all peoples, that they might praise and extol the one true God. And as the voices prepared by the Holy Spirit to answer the call to repent of their sins and to believe and to join the family of the Lord, the covenanted ones, the true Israel, the saints of all the ages. As they do so, they gain one voice, voice that pray, a voice that praises and glorifies their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in, yes, multinational worship. This is the glorious theme. This is the proclamation of our psalm today. The aim of my message today is to communicate the weight of Scripture's shortest song, if you will. To communicate the weight of the shortest chapter in the Bible, the shortest song that I know of in the Holy Scriptures, yet powerful in theme. As you're able, would you stand once again out of reverence for God's Word? And let us listen to these two short verses today. But don't miss how powerful and profound they are as we set our ears to hear the Word of God this day. Psalm 117.1 Praise the Lord, all nations, extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Saints, will you echo that refrain with me today? On the count of three, let us say, praise the Lord. One, two, three. Praise the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. This, Psalm 117, is the fifth of the Hallel Psalms. Hallel, Hebrew for praise. 
We've remarked that there's a set of six psalms that historically were set apart for festal gathering, that is, gathering around feasts to celebrate God's delivering power, specifically with respect to deliverance out of Egypt, but of course that foretold deliverance from our sins in the salvation of Christ alone. Psalm 117 is the second to the last of these, and it comes to us in just two short verses. It opens and closes with the same commandment, praise the Lord. Verse 1, verse 2b closes again, praise the Lord. Psalm 117 is unique in several ways. As we've already remarked, it is the shortest song or shortest chapter at least in the Bible. It is followed by Psalm 118, which in our English translations is right in the middle. And then it's followed after that by Psalm 119, which in turn is the longest chapter in the Bible. It is situated near the center of the scriptural canon, and its truths, may I submit, are central to the message of the scriptures, all of the gospel as well. It extends, that is, Psalm 117, the scope of covenant by way of proclamation that is hoped to be found in reconciliation between God and man. It extends the promises of the scope of the covenant, hope, far beyond Israel's ethnic geographical borders. As it lifts the call to worship, proclaims as much to all nations and all peoples. Furthermore, it is cited as a primary prophecy of Gentile gospel inclusion in the New Testament as well. And Romans 15 will close remarking how Paul cites these verses as being fulfilled even in his own ministry. So with these unique factors in mind and a few more, we see that we have a real treasure on our hands as we read these two short verses in Psalm 117. Many have noted that though it is brief, this song by word count, its theme is colossal. Its theme is incredible, sweeping, transcendent, powerful, glorious. The fact that the word of Jesus Christ will go forth, gathering a representative people from every nation, the scriptures go on to say too many to count by number, is truly a magnificent theme. In fact, we are gathered in this assembly today in obedience to the call to worship expressed in this song. Because the word of God, through his spirit and the gospel, has issued us a charge. Praise the Lord and extol him all peoples, even those of us who are populating this northern, central, whatever, Minnesota region. We have said yes to that call to worship. Thus we gather, even in this place, in our assembly this morning, in obedience to Psalm 117. It is common that songs shorter in length and weighty in theme would be used for many different purposes. And raise your hand if you know the doxology. Praise God from whom all... Let's sing it together. Scenes flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Now that song is weighty and powerful. It declares to us the revelation of Jesus Christ in His triune form. Or I'm sorry, the revelation of God Almighty in His triune form. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. No matter how many times I sing that psalm, we open usually our meals as a family with the doxology. It was precious and sweet and mere moments ago when we sang it. It has that quality of being timeless, never getting old, if you truly appreciate the weighty themes that it conveys. So like the doxology, Psalm 117 was likely used in similar ways. In our day, in recent history, the doxology has served as a short song, yet weighty in theme that is fitting for many occasions. Think of invocation, a prayer to open an event. Think of benediction, a blessing to close the same. Think of memory, communicating to us the truths of precious scripture and theology. Think of instruction, informing the young as to realities of the Christian faith. And think of perspective. Our Lord is truly worthy of worship and every occasion to sing unto him in this heart and spirit is awesome and we should take that opportunity. The doxology serves those purposes. Psalm 117, may I suggest, may well have served similar purposes in its day, and I suggest could well serve purposes in our day as a frequent festival or temple or family worship song. Psalm 117, due to its shortness and due to its weight and theme, may well have served as the, quote, doxology of its day 
and I suggest we would do well to introduce it in our regular praise as well. Its truths are certainly timeless. Think of how this psalm might have been the first hymn, I imagine, taught to a foreign nation once the missionaries had preached the gospel. Think of Jonah, even in the Old Testament, proclaiming the gospel in as many words to the city, to the nation of Assyria, to the city of Nineveh. I imagine the town square overflowing with converts after his reluctant preaching and among the first songs perhaps they offered to the Lord in praise of saving them, unlikely, outcast, hell-deserving Gentiles. Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all nations, yes, even Nineveh. Extol him, all peoples, even Assyrians. For great is his steadfast love towards us. We among all peoples did not deserve it. And, his, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. A fitting hymn for the convert. I imagine a recorded version. It's just something, a fantasy in my own mind I wish existed. I imagine a recorded version of Psalm 117 in every single known language. Could you imagine listening to that? Maybe you're like me and you podcast a lot. At work, you could listen to it end for end if you had as many hours. Psalm 117 sung over and over and over again in every single known language. Imagine Psalm 117, furthermore, on the lips of the crowd so great that no one can number in the book of Revelation. We read of these in 7-9 and in chapter 19, as I recall, a population of those who, attend, who inhabit the realms of glory from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This song, in addition to those that they sing, recorded in the book of Revelation, would be such a fitting praise, would it not? As these, the redeemed ones, and we one day joining them, lift up with one voice like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Can you hear it? Multitudes of voices, too many to number, a roar like peals of thunder, uh, drowning out any other sound to the only thing you hear in your ears is every saint fully redeemed at the depths of his soul and at the top of his lungs singing praise to the Lord who has redeemed him against all odds, the devil, his sin, and the flesh unto the glorious habitation of the realms in glory joining the elders and saints and the holy angels who have preceded him crying out in this way, holy Holy, holy is the Lord, and worthy is the Lamb that was slain. After this introduction, let me give you a little bit more perspective to appreciate the weighty themes of Psalm 117. Here's a heading. Psalm 117 can be illuminated by salvation history. That is, we should consider this song, I suggest, in light of the following. Past revelation, so the scriptures that preceded the authorship of the songs. Revelation itself, the revelation of this song in Psalm 117 itself, so that would be present revelation. And then third and finally this morning, future revelation. Past revelation, Genesis 12, Exodus 34, 1 Kings 8 are all background themes that establish the grounding in the scriptures that preceded Psalm 117. Psalm 117 itself, we will find in point number two, is a beautiful, orchestrated, however simple, ode with all of these parallels that help us understand its depth. And then finally, Romans 15, the great Gentile missionary Romans cites Psalm 117 as proof that the Gentile inclusion is upon us. Past Revelation, point one. Turn with me to Genesis 12 briefly. Let us just mark a few of the background verses informing the theme of Psalm 117. Again, consider this song, Psalm 117, in light of first... Abraham's influence, more specifically the covenant of Abraham and its influence. These words should be familiar to you if you've been following along in our Genesis series. We've referenced this passage many times because it is so central to all of Scripture and the unfolding revelation of the gospel. Verse 2, the Lord says to his chosen son, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And then note, particularly this last phrase, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Consider Psalm 117 in light of these truths. 
the promise to Abraham that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This forms the background and the authoritative revelation for the psalmist to write this command, this injunction, this imperative, this decree to all nations and all peoples, praise the Lord, extol Him, because the blessings of Abraham will extend even unto you if you realize the King of kings and Lord of lords has provided even for you, Gentile, your salvation in the Son of Abraham to come, and for us, the Son of Abraham who has come. Think of the context of Genesis 12, the prior chapter. Chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. God's judgment has descended upon the wickedness of mankind, separating him into nations, people groups, and languages, and so forth, for the purpose in his providence of mankind not destroying his social circumstances and relationships and not being metastasized. That means increasing in his rebellion to such a degree that it's deserving of a flood all over again. So there's judgment, there's separation, there's distinction, and there's multiple nations that are introduced. Why? Because of man's sin. But there's coming a new reunification event. Why? Because of one man's righteousness. You could perhaps say it this way, because of the sin of Adam and all its effects, all the nations of the earth were divided at odds, and then enmity and war became a reality of the human existence. But on the other side of the coin, because of one man's righteousness, his passive and active obedience, as we have been preaching about of late, Jesus Christ, the second Adam. So all nations, representative people from every tribe, tongue, and language, will be reunified in him. And this is what was proclaimed, promised to Abraham. Imagine how discouraging it would be to go your separate ways, to lose your common bond of communication. The solidarity of the human experience is threatened because of sin and separation and differences and language, experience and lands and dwelling and values, and war breaks out, and tension, and conflict, and misunderstanding, and everything else that plagues the human condition. Imagine how discouraging that would be. Yet in the midst of this, a light shines bright. It's the gospel proclaimed to one man, unlikely idolater, called out from Ur and Haran, and given a mission to follow the word of God, and in the covenant made to him, thereby be a light unto this promise, the reunification of everything that was lost, broken, and separated in sin one day through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is the promise of Pentecost. Why do you think that the apostles began to speak in other languages, proclaiming the gospel in languages they previously, moments before, didn't even understand, so that with one voice and with one accord, the hearts of the lost and that representative people to the tune of thousands on the day of you know, Acts when the Holy Spirit had visited the church, why do you think this event happened? Why the supernatural gift of languages? Well, it was to demonstrate that in Christ the fulfillment of what was promised to Abraham and what was lost in Babel was now upon us. The gospel would go forth to every tribe, tongue, and nation, would redeem a people, and there would be a glorious reunification event. Abraham's influence is being realized even today as you and I from a distant land, removed by culture, language, years, and geography, etc., are gathered in now to the one voice of the author of Psalm 17, singing with joy and enthusiasm even this morning in our hearts, praises to the Lord, extolling the God who saved us. Past revelation provides further perspective and background for Psalm 117, including Abraham's influence. So we see Abraham's influence going forth in the proclamation to all nations to worship him. Secondly, Yahweh's self-disclosure. For this reference, turn to Exodus 34. Yahweh, the high covenant name for God. I am in some translations. His name is accompanied by the revelation, the introduction of God himself. That's what self-disclosure means. It means God himself introducing himself, in this case through his minister Moses, but by his word to all whose eyes are open to the same. Exodus 34, 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. Verse 5, notice the language. The Lord descended. You could say condescended. That concept is in view. That is, the Lord stooped low to reveal himself, to show himself as we studied of late in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is God himself introducing himself to his servant Moses, proclaiming his name Yahweh, which means forever self-sufficient covenant keeper and more. It says the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, 
This is the voice of God. Listen. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Notice these two attributes, steadfast love and faithfulness. He continues, verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Verse 8, we have Moses' response. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped and said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for this is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Verse 10, he said, this is the Lord speaking, Yahweh, the one who has just introduced himself in this way, according to his steadfast love and faithfulness to Moses, he says, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as they have not been created in all earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So you see this again, informed. Consider Psalm 117 in light of Yahweh's self-introduction, self-disclosure to Moses and through Moses to his people and through the word of God even to us as people yet today. Does it not make sense that this would inspire a song declaring praise the Lord all nations? The Lord has revealed himself in steadfast love and faithfulness to Moses and said, I will display my wonders to all the peoples around you. In Exodus 34, for great is his steadfast love, the psalmist continues to sing in verse 2, toward us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. So Psalm 117 is further illuminated by salvation history. God has revealed himself to Moses and through Moses as the God who is steadfast in his love. The Hebrew word there is hesed, as we have often noted. It's the gospel of the Old Testament. God, furthermore, God reveals himself to Moses and through Moses as the faithful one. And he does so in person, and he does so in answer to Moses' request. May I please see your glory? In 33:18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Quote, and the Lord answered. And he did so in the text we just read, Exodus 34, 4 through 10. That is to say, the glory of the Lord included the following. A self-disclosure of his attributes, including his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And also, the giving of the law, laying out clearly covenant stipulations, and his purposes to display his glory. If that remains fresh in your mind, you as an heir to the promises of Abraham, reiterated to his servant Moses, believing that God will do the same in your day and continue this purpose beyond your time, we do well to draw inspiration from these realities and write a song, such as Psalm 117, commanding all nations, now having sufficient knowledge of Him, view of His works, recorded in Scripture, visible by word and proclamation and testimony, beyond the borders of ancient Israel. You better praise the Lord, all nations. You better extol Him, because you have witnessed in the gospel going forth, even in this seed form, His steadfast love, His faithfulness, and more. Therefore, worship Him. Number three, under past revelation, we considered Abraham's influence, Yahweh's self-disclosure. Let's turn to a third reference in 1 Kings 8. This would be Solomon's prayer. Solomon's temple prayer, 1 Kings chapter 8. So you remember, David had this vision. It troubled David that, practically speaking, it seemed that there was more focus on him than the Lord himself. The Lord had a tent. David dwelt in a palace. The people gave David praises and accolades for the defeat of Goliath. David, as a man influenced by the heart of the Lord himself, did not feel right about this. And thus, it was placed upon his soul a burden that Yahweh would be magnified and glorified. And David's first thought is, I will build him a house. Though he would not build it, that vision was carried forward to the next generation. And the man of war gave birth to a man of peace, as it were, this being Solomon, and Solomon finally has built the temple. He's acquired all of the necessary resources. He's erected this glorious and splendid you know, place, and yet it troubles him as well. That in spite of all their efforts, and the riches gathered and gleaned from even nations, and the influence of Yahweh has compelled nations and 
distant lands to provide cedar and artisans and so forth to create this whole edifice. It troubles Solomon still. But this is not even close to what the Lord deserves. Yet Solomon prays, in spite of the little they have to offer, by way of worthy habitation for God Almighty, who's dwelt among them in palpable, tangible presence, even the glory cloud that has attended their way from Exodus and residing as they gather together in worship. He asks of the Lord that nevertheless the God of heaven would hear them. Notice in verse 41. Likewise, when a foreigner, Solomon prays, who is not of your people Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Solomon realized that this house was not just the proprietary worship interest, religious liturgical, whatever, organized place for his people alone. But it held out a hope, a lighthouse, a beacon, and a message to the nations that in this one place wherein is represented a sufficient sacrifice to unify a sinner with the holy God is hope, light, truth, and salvation. And so he prays. And the occasions for Solomon's prayer are manifold. In other words, he says, may we turn to your temple when... We are defeated in battle. May we turn to you when we have famine among us because of your judgments. May we turn to you when your disciplines bring drought upon your land. May we turn to you when we are called to defend our position against foreign armies. And joining these occasions, this final one that we're studying today, may the lost turn to you. May foreigners find the revelation of you in this place. There's one more note in the context I want, you, want to point out to you. This would be in verse 54. 1 Kings, I'm sorry, yeah, 8, 54. Listen. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying. So do you get the picture? Look up here. I'm kneeling down. I have my hand raised. This is the posture of Solomon. Think of this man. This is the most accomplished and influential king that Israel will ever know. This is the man who commands the admiration of distant lands, inspiring them to travel great distance to see if the rumors of his wisdom are true, and then upon finding that they are, being overcome and overflowing with praise and adulation and just the amazement that cannot even be expressed in words, and so they bring gifts as well. The Queen of Sheba, you know, servants are drawn from distant regions. Nations are spilling in with their riches to the king because they want to seek his favor. This is Solomon. But what posture do we find Solomon in when he offers this prayer? We find him kneeling with hands raised to heaven. What is this posture? This posture is one of submission it's one of reverence. It's one of obedience to a greater king still. And this is the truth. The authority of the king of kings is evident in the posture that Solomon takes when he asks, uh, asks of the king of kings if he'd extend his mercy even to the foreigners and providing a light of hope and revelation for them if they would turn from their sins and turn to the revelation of God at this point symbolically residing in the temple. So Psalm 117 then follows with this background and its perspective and its pointed uh, call to the nations becomes more clear, does it not? And light of this temple, which exists as a beacon to show forth the praise, the steadfast love, the faithfulness of Yahweh to everyone, the only place where man can have hope to be reconciled with the holy God represented in the exclusive place and provision of sacrifice. Therefore, praise the Lord all nations, and extol him, all peoples. That's point number one. Psalm 117, illuminated by salvation history. Considering the redemptive historical context that helps inform these two short verses. Considering this song in light of past revelation, including 
Abraham's influence, Yahweh's self-disclosure, and Solomon's prayer. And there are many more examples. We'll leave it there for now. Point number two. Let's consider Psalm 117, illuminated by its own beauty. Present revelation. Psalm 117 is arranged by parallels, and they reinforce three major themes, I suggest. Command, audience, and occasion. Notice, first of all, the beginning and the end of the psalm are bracketed by this commandment. Praise the Lord, all nations extol Him, all peoples. And then the psalm closes in verse 2 again, issuing this decree, this command. Praise the Lord. The commandment to praise the Lord is repeated twice, and praise has a parallel as well. The psalmist doesn't just say praise the Lord, but he adds to this, extol Him. So beginning and end of the psalm reinforce the command to praise. And then the command to praise is reinforced by its parallel, extol. So, these are, so this uh, is the revelation of Psalm 117 emphasized by these parallels, by these repeated statements. It's one of these common devices in biblical poetry. For instance, or la- it's similar to last week. This is, you'll find this in other passages of Scripture as well. Remember, we finished our, first, our study of 1 Peter. And we noted that in the beginning, Paul or Peter, the apostle, opens the book with an appeal to the beauty of the grace and peace of the Lord, established and available to the church in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then he makes a petition at the end, a salutation. He signs off his letter with a prayer that that grace and peace would attend their way. Thus, with these brackets opening and closing his epistle, we see a major theme. In a similar way here in Psalm 117, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, opening and closing this song just emphasizes to us the importance to command to the world that they must bow before the King of Kings. These are the bookends, the brackets of this song. And furthermore, there's a parallel, as I've said, between extol and praise. Praise, the word there in Hebrew is hallel, which corresponds to the title given this set of songs. Hallel, praise the Lord. Now one thinks of Exodus 12, 36 through 38. That could be a past revelation you could add to our list of three that we opened the message with. And this is the record of Egypt being despoiled. The riches of the Egyptians flow into this one-time slave people's pockets as they leave uh, Egypt and head towards a promised land. Did you know that? Kids, did you know that when the Israelites left Egypt, that they were really rich? That they had a lot of gold, precious fabrics, and different things of this sort, jewels. Why? Because the people of the land, in honor and reverence to the power of Yahweh, the one true God, said, here, take this, take this, take this. What else did they take with them? Did you know that there was a mixed multitude that exited Egypt to enter to the promised land? They not only took riches, they took some inhabitants of the Egyptians with them as well. These were early people obedient. These were early followers of the command of Psalm 117 to praise the Lord, all nations. I imagine my, you ever put yourself kind of in, a, a, in the story? Sometimes when you're little, it's easy, or you know, the easiest thing is to imagine yourself as a hero. Oh, I'm going to be like David and slay my Goliath. But as you grow a little bit in your spiritual maturity, you may find a little bit more realistic place to put yourself in the story. I wonder if you imagine yourself in the story of Exodus where you place yourself. Well, let me suggest an appropriate place might be among the Egyptians themselves. Aren't you a Gentile like me? Probably. And if so, you're probably amongst the people blind to the truth until something sovereign happened to your attention. And I imagine myself, my eyes being opened by the glorious, miraculous, wondrous works wrought by Moses, this servant of a God that is greater than Osiris and the whole pantheon of idiotic concepts that my neighbors worship all the time. It cannot compare to the power of Yahweh. So what do I do? I give my offering. What do I do? I join them in their journey. I decide, because my eyes have been opened by the glorious revelation of Yahweh's awesome works, that I better listen to His command and follow Him wherever He leads. And so where that cloud's going, I'm going too. Count me among the Hebrews. Count me among His covenant people. I'm not leaving that cloud. Herein we see a background and context for the praise that is uh, to be echoed and to be offered by the distant lands. In other words, as an early prototype of all nations worshiping the Lord in that Exodus example, this message will only be strengthened 
in his proclamation. And Psalm 117 testifies to the same. When it says, Praise the Lord, that is Yahweh, the one true God, who delivered his people, all nations. Don't just praise him, ethnic seed of Abraham. Don't just praise him, geographically bound region of Israel. No, extol him, all peoples. Extol and praise. Praise Hallel. Extol. If you looked at some of its connotations in the original language, you could string a sentence like this together. Loudly glorify the triumphant one. I'll say it again unless you, in case you want to write it down. It's something I would write down. Loudly glorify the triumphant one. What does it mean to extol? Well, that's one possible meaning to loudly glorify the triumphant one. People loudly glorify all kinds of stupid things in our culture, just as they did back then. You know, the pharaohs of the day were loudly glorified. And people imagined them and presumed that they were triumphant. The figment of man's imagination of what will save him runs just as wild and crazy and ludicrous and insane today as it has in every age. People loudly glorify their hopes of salvation. And the next candidate for their future hope that they find in all different forms Everything from technology to political leaders. Yet there is only one worthy of loudly glorifying, is there not? This would be Yahweh. And that message goes forth to all peoples, even us today, all nations, everyone who's ever been born. Reserve your loud praises of the triumphant one to the only one who ultimately is worthy of them, Yahweh himself. And so in the repeated emphasis of praise, extol and praise, and the bookends introducing and closing the song, however short, this commandment is reiterated. Commandment, you might ask? Isn't that interesting? Well, let me make a, mo a comment on that in a minute. But think about um, whether you pray... Uh, give me an answer to this question. And just ponder this question before we get there. Do you praise the Lord because He commands you? Or do you praise the Lord because He is glorious? Do you praise the Lord because He commands you? Or do you praise the Lord because He's glorious? Now, second set of parallels in Psalm 117 identifies the audience. We've referenced this a bunch already. All nations and all peoples. Praise the Lord, verse 1, all nations. And just to make the point that much stronger, extol Him, all peoples. Nations and peoples. Peoples in the Greek, ethnos or ethnicities, you know, distinct sets of individuals who are bound together by common social experience, right? Now, this is a concept that is very alive and well and popular today. Today, there's a whole lot of weight of identity placed upon someone's background, ethnicity, you know, their, uh, everything from skin color to culture comes to mind as a primary marker of identity. And some of the, you know, tensions that arise out of so-called, you know, ideologies and philosophies and social scientific notions such as critical race theory, they all hinge on the question of what primarily and fundamentally identifies us. And today the answers that the world gives to those questions are all wrong, as I've referenced before from this pulpit. However, there is a correct answer to the question, where is, wherein is legitimate, long-lasting and enduring harmony, peace, Reconciliation found between men and peoples and nations otherwise divided by intractable conflict. You know where that's found? It's found in the praise of the one true God. You see, we've learned in 1 Peter that a calling to be a Christian is a calling to a new nation, a new priesthood, a new national identity, a new ethnos, a new people. That is to say that if Psalm 117 is to be heeded, there are elements of your culture, I don't care what nation you are from, that need to be repented of. Let me hasten to follow this with say, by saying, in God's common grace, there are beautiful elements of all different peoples that can be redeemed. But don't get it out of balance. These days, on multiculturalism, we're supposed to laud and glorify and never, you know, and never offend anybody for their cultural identity, heritage, background, national you know, uh, experience, and so on and so forth. But this isn't the way that the Lord pitches unity and values and virtues in Scripture. No, Psalm 117, it says... To all nations and all peoples, praise the Lord and extol Him. Yahweh is the principle of international unity, if you will. This is the goal of the gospel, to create one voice who will find their unity and identity in praising Jesus Christ. No matter the tribe, tongue, culture, nation, ethnos, ethnicity, so on and so forth that they hail from. Get it straight, saints. 
because this is directly opposed by modern secular views today. They seek to substitute one's experience and lived experience and subjective truth and so forth for the only thing that can truly unify, galvanize, and advance a people, Jesus Christ and the worship of the same. And in Him, the beautiful diversity that can be redeemed receives its full, manifold, redeemed expression. And this is the message of God's Holy Scripture. Any message short of this will only divide, it will only conquer, it will only fragment, it will only increase strife and animosity. And we should stand for the right message. The audience, who is the audience of Psalm 117? That's not, you know, white, cisgender, male evangelicals. No, this is all nations and all peoples who are addressed by this charge to praise Him and Him alone. What's the occasion? Command, audience, and occasion. The occasion is twofold, I suggest, the commandment and the attributes of the Almighty God. Verse 2, why do we praise? For great is His steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. So remember that question I asked a little while ago? Why, excuse me, why do you praise the Lord? Do you praise the Lord because He commanded you? Or do you praise the Lord because of His praiseworthy attributes? Trick question. The answer is yes, yes to both. We praise the Lord because He commands us, and we praise the Lord because of His steadfast love and His faithfulness toward us. This cuts against the grain of popular default evangelical so-called gospel notions today. In our radical autonomy, in our individualism, in our self-worship, a lot of times the gospel has been corrupted to be something like this. Jesus Christ is a perfect gentleman. He stands meekly at the door of your heart, knocking just waiting for you to open and come in, and he will never step on your toes and never offend you. Does that sound like Psalm 117 to you? Does that sound like the, the Jesus of Revelation from where that out-of-context verse is gleaned? Who has a sword in his mouth and eyes flames of fire, destroys his enemy to the tune of blood so high in a pool that it's up to the horses and bridles? No, I don't think that's the right way. Jesus Christ is not pictured as this meek and lowly perfect gentleman who submits to human will. No way. We worship Jesus because he commands us to worship. His authority compels us to worship Him, but that's not all. He's not just a tyrant who demands faithfulness and so forth on the threat of punishment, abuse, or torture. No, the punishment that is threatened to us, we totally deserve because of our sin. And when we realize that that's the case, His authority compels us to repent of our sin, trust in Him for our salvation, and moves us to follow Him and give Him our duty and our, our allegiance because He is our King. And more than this, as Solomon pictured in his posture, he is the king of kings. Thus, the authority of Jesus Christ compels us to worship. But isn't it beautiful, the whole scale revelation of God's scripture? Not only his authority, but how loving and faithful he is also moves us to worship. This is full-orbed Christian worship. We bow before a king and we rejoice because his steadfast love towards us is great. And his faithfulness, especially in the cross of Calvary, endures forever. We are subjects. We are called to obey our king. But we worship the most incredible, long-suffering, self-giving king who gave his own blood, flesh and blood as a sacrifice to purchase for us our eternal hope, to purchase for us eternal life. And so we praise him for both because he is authoritative and because he is lovely. Final point this morning. Psalm 117 illuminated by... Past revelation, things like Abraham's influence, Yahweh's self-disclosure, Solomon's prayer. And we've considered it in its own context, present revelation of Psalm 117, the command, the audience, the occasion. Let us close with future revelation in Romans 15. Turn there with me as our final point here, or our final point of reference for this morning's message. Paul cites right from Psalm 117, verse 1 in Romans 15. Remember who this is. This is the preeminent Gentile missionary. All right? And remember the background. Abraham's influence will demonstrate itself in such a way that God will gather for himself a people from all nations. Remember the commandment of Psalm 17. Worship, extol him, all peoples, all nations. And now, let us note the fulfillment, even in the ministry, of this great missionary to the Gentiles, Paul himself, whose legacy is being continued by the gospel going forth even yet today. Verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. 
May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice, there's the title of our message, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It goes on to give a purpose statement for Christ's own ministry in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, so that would be the ethnic Jews, to show God's truthfulness. Purpose one. Purpose two. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Purpose three. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. And now Paul's going to ground his claim. His assertion is sound based upon the following. Four scriptural references. First one. Therefore I will praise you among, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That is drawn from 2 Samuel 22.50. And again it is said, verse 10, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. That's a reference from Deuteronomy 32.43. Here's our text. And again, we're drawn from Psalm 117.1, quote, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. One final reference, verse 12. And again Isaiah says, this would be 11.10 of Isaiah, quote, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Finally, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Consider Psalm 117 in light of future revelation. Paul himself says that this was prophesied of old. Praise Him, all you nations. Extol Him, all you peoples. And how will that be accomplished? Through the proclamation of the gospel, through that, first thirst, or through that first wave of apostles bringing forth the message of hope in Christ. And Paul says as much by referring to these prior passages. He does so by emphasizing the purpose. Well, he reveals to us the purpose of Christ's own ministry. In part, the purpose for Christ's incarnation itself. Why did Jesus Christ come? Number one, to vindicate God's word, to show God's truthfulness. Number two, to fulfill the covenant line promises. It was to fulfill the covenant, he says, to confirm the promises even to the patriarchs. And then number three, which corresponds in theme so powerfully with Psalm 117, it was to secure the worship of the Gentiles. Jesus Christ came so that one Psalm 117 could flourish and manifest itself in glorious, evident truth. Psalm 117 is coming to fulfillment because Jesus came. Jesus came in part to secure for himself the worship of the Gentiles, to secure for himself worship from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and we are testimony to the power of the gospel, securing us as worshipers, even from the distant land in which we dwell. This is the purpose that Paul gives for the coming of Christ, and he says this is prophesied based on four references. And I just note in passing, one reference from the writings, it's a category of Old Testament revelation, one reference from the law, Deuteronomy, category of OT revelation again, in the category of the Psalms, in the category of the prophets, as if to say all of Old Testament Scripture, an example from each category of Old Testament, the writings, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, they prophesied, they proclaimed as much, that the Lord will be praised, yes, even among the Gentiles. So Psalm 117 is a reality due to the missionary efforts of the enduring church who takes seriously the fact that he commands all nations to worship and takes seriously the glories of his gospel, which include his steadfast love and his enduring faithfulness. What result does Paul expect from this truth? Well, a number of things. Verse 4, again, instruction. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Psalm 17, 1 and 2 instructs us that we ought to expect glorious fruit from Mercy's missionary, mission work in I Care Ethiopia, reaching out to single moms begging on the streets of Addis and the cities there and providing for them means to take care of their needs all the while preaching Christ, the gospel that truly saves. We should expect fruit from that effort because what was written in former days was given for our instruction that Psalm 117 will come to pass in increasing measure even today. Likewise, I always use our missionaries that we support as examples to just put some tangible, you know, uh, meat on the bone, as it were, but 
uh, Fred and Cindy as they go to Malawi are, if not there already, leaving very shortly. And when they go, we can expect fruit from their ministry. Even though they speak another language, they don't have anything to relate to in their cultural experience aside from the time they've already spent there. Who are these Americans coming in? What do they have to offer this nation distinct in its cultural identity? Well, Psalm 117 answers that question. They have the commandment and the revelation of the glorious gospel of steadfast love of Christ to proclaim to that nation and to declare he is worthy of praise. Therefore, praise him. Therefore, extol him. Malawi, Ethiopia, United States, Mexico. The visitor from Mexico in church here last week. Same thing. And so all of these are examples of the purpose for Psalm 117, the prophecies that preceded, and the fulfillment that Paul announces. Furthermore, he says that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So add to instruction, endurance, and encouragement. Other purposes for realizing the value of Psalm 117. It will give you endurance and encouragement as well as instruction. And are you not as we listen to this perspective from Scripture that in spite of all the claims to the contrary, the false principalities, powers, and authorities that would like to claim, lay claim to nations, peoples, identities, and so forth, there's one who rules over them all and is acquiring for himself a people from every nook and cranny of this globe. Amen. It should encourage us. And then again, may the Lord grant endurance and encouragement and grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. There's another purpose. Instruction, endurance, encouragement, harmony, and ultimately all of this serves the greatest purpose of all, the glory of the Lord. He says as much in verse 6 and 7, that together you may with one voice glorify the Lord, the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. When we realize, confess, and obey the commandment of Psalm 117, we have from that perspective all of these resources. We are encouraged, we are instructed, we can endure, and we have increasing harmony and unity, and all of this brings glory to our Lord. Thus, when we realize the value of, these, of scriptures such as this, we will find ourselves even more obedient, Psalm 117, to praise Him and to extol Him by being more firm and confident and bold and loving compassionate, enduring, and so forth in our faith. Let us pray as we close that these are the, would be the result of even this message today. Father, we thank you for the testimony of your scriptures, which are sufficient to equip us by the Spirit's use for every good work. And I pray that believers listening and hearing of this sermon today, that that would be the result. That we would be instructed, encouraged, unto endurance, and that a sweet harmony in the Beloved would arise as we realize that Christ is worthy and that He has commanded all nations and all peoples to set aside their idols, to repent of their sin, and turn to Him, to extol Him, the only one who is worthy of our loud praise, glorifying the triumphant one. I pray that we would do so in one voice, and increasingly so, joining those who have preceded us in the stands of glory worshiping you, the worthy one who was slain before that throne forevermore. Thank you, Lord, for the power of your scripture to endure and equip us unto this vision. May it happen in the name of Jesus. One more thing we pray. If the lost have heard this message going forth from this pulpit today, and as of yet, they have not identified with Christ. They are still in their trespasses and sins. I, I pray that they would repent, believe, and come to Zion. Not the place where animal sacrifices commenced at Solomon's temple, but no, the true Mount Zion, where the once-for-all sacrifice, Jesus Christ, was slain on their behalf. That they might join us in the sweet harmony, extolling and praising you, O Lord, Yahweh, King of kings, Lord of lords, the only one who could provide the sacrifice sufficient to cleanse us from sin and to grant us eternal life. In his name we pray. Amen.